Hello there, me again, Dr. Neil Butchery. Now, I'm not going to mess about. I'm going to get straight into the podcast this week, except to say three very quick things. Thank you ever so much for the great feedback you've sent me about the last episode, where I talked with Felicity Cloak about breakfast. You'd be an absolute star if you could also rate and review the podcast wherever you get them. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever. Every single one makes a difference. Okay, that's one. Number two, something I say at the end normally, but I know not everyone listens to the end, and I want more to hear it. If you've got any suggestions for topics, or if you've got any comments, questions, or queries about this episode, or any of the ones that have happened already, please contact me by email, neil at britishfoodhistory.com, or on Twitter, at neilbuttery, or Instagram, at doctor, that's dr underscore neil, underscore buttery. It's all in the show notes. Three, my book, A Dark History of Sugar, published by Pen and Sod History, is out now and available everywhere in both paper form and pixel form. All right, here we go. Episode two, season four. We've got Emma Kay, stalwart of the podcast, having appeared in three episodes already. Emma is an author of many, many books historian and an all-round good egg her latest book a history of herbalism cook cure and conjure was published in june 2022 also by pen and sword history and i got her on to talk about it now i've got mixed feelings about herbalism there's a lot of good medicine there but there's a lot of superstition and quackery as well but wherever you sit on the scale of belief you can't ignore the fact that it's important in understanding personal and social history We talked about loads, the importance of herbs in medicine, herbs in magic and in food, as well as how these things are all interconnected, the four humours, Anglo-Saxon medical texts, the double standards surrounding men and women who practised magic and medicine, two female pioneers of botany and herbalism, and narcotic garden vegetables. I'll be back at the end to tell you about this episode's Easter eggs and any other news. But for now, over to Emma. Hey, Congratulations on your book, History of Herbalism. Oh, thank you. I wrote it actually during the first lockdown. Um, And it it was one of those things that because we were in lockdown, Mm -hmm. I had, you know, apart from having to juggle educating my son, you know, it was a time when we could all just kind of have a bit more, um, pay a bit more attention to things. So from that point of view, I really got quite absorbed into it. And I started planting a lot more herbs as well and eating a lot more herbs and all mm. the rest of it. So you got, I, kind of, I was kind of living it and writing it at the same time. It was one of the huge benefits, wasn't it, of that lockdown, that we did have to kind yes. of time to uh, find time to do all those things that you just don't manage to fit in normally. But when you're in and around the house you can kind of catch up with planting those plants or maybe the get, getting the garden sorted, which you've maybe been putting off for months and months or years and years. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I guess was the book partly born out of that? Um, I, th- I can't remember. I think we actually agreed it beforehand. I think it was like just before we went into lockdown. And then and then I thought, oh, that's fantastic. I can't think of anything actually that I'd rather focus on because it sort of encapsulates all the things that kind of excite me, you know, in terms of looking way back to, you know, something that's so 
basic and fundamental to our diets and our lives and our ancestors mm -hmm. and that ancient kind of power and you know making that connection with our sort of ancient ancestors I thought I was to me that was quite special and you know it was quite indulgent I really loved that so I think it was like the best book for me to, to write at that time and because there were just so many nice stories it was a, it was kind of quite uplifting sometimes too I think and are you coming from a sort of what a social history or a, a basic history or a, or a food historian sort of perspective mm. or I mean yeah. we've never really talked about this before actually I'm surprised it's never come up I mean I'm very much devout atheist oh, right. okay. <laughs> and I'm not superstitious although it's yeah although it's fun to kind of talk about it and I find it very interesting and also I'm not one of those annoying atheists of kind of poo-poo people who do <laughs> going for that yeah. kind of thing I, I find that interesting and we've always talked about you know throughout the centuries about food being good for your food being medicinal and there are yeah. obviously med uh, med medicines derived from plants which are, oh, aren't alternative yeah. they're just medicine yeah, yeah. you know even, you know, the, yeah. I, the, the example that I always think of is salicylic acid you know from the barks of um yeah. willow trees that's aspirin yeah you know? Yes. <laughs> so it's I not know. alternative and you know people sort of poo poo it all as happy clappy hippie nonsense yeah. and it's it's not no. quite true is it there's there's actually quite a lot of hard science oh, in there there is a lot of hard science there and there's a lot of pharmaceutical country uh, uh, companies uh that you know use herbs as the, as the foundation for a lot of drugs not enough i think sadly there's too there's too much manufactured stuff you've got to remember that we probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for herbs because once upon a time you know there was no other form of medicine and people managed to survive and get over things and recover through herbal remedies or else you know we would have been wiped out really if you think about it <laughs> I just think they're like fundamental to to our lives, literally. You know, they once healed us and they provided comfort and, you know, solace and magic and, you know, ritual and all sorts of things from our very early ancestors. And I think it's that we kind of abuse them a bit now and don't think of them in that way. You know, people just tend to use the same old standard herbs for things and, and don't give it much thought. But it was a huge part of our lives. You know, we were all pagan once. <laughs> so uh, you, you've got to remember that, that that's where where we come from. You look at some of the oldest recipes in the world, you know, the Sumerian, the, the clay tablets, they're about 4,000 years old. You know, one of those tablets contains about 25 sort of just pottage recipe you know like a soup recipes just basically herbs you know yeah. and I, and I think that's how it all started you know and I think herbs were added to food because they were sort of powerful and potent and as well as being enhancers for flavor and those really aromatic flavor enhancers you know if you put some rosemary in your soup and you put too much in you know you know yeah. when you've put too much because <laughs> I yeah well I find it delicious uh rosemary flavored aromatics rosemary. if you overdo yeah. it it's kind of nasty soapy it is but really nasty. you know we, yeah. we know now through experiments uh that yeah those compounds which are really strong tasting are compounds that are supposed to put pests off from nibbling it you know because if you're yeah. a little 
you know, if you're eating just raw, <laughs> straight from the branch rosemary, it's going to be very unpalatable, yeah. very bitter. It's antimicrobial. You know, it's really trying to defend itself from all sorts of nasties. You know, a lot of people still, I think, now will look at herbs to help with very simple things that are wrong with them. Don't get me wrong. I think, and I've said it in the book and I will say it again now, I do not believe that herbs are a cure-all and I do not, you know, I am very much all for modern medicine. I would not say, please don't treat me for cancer. I'm going to try an alternative, you know, I will take anything that's on offer. But, uh, and I think everyone should. I think it's very silly to try and think that herbs can cure you of anything, but they can really help. If, if you're really knowledgeable about them, they can really help. And we know that they can. Uh, you know, there's plenty of history to suggest that they did. And, you know, no one would have survived. They are good for us, but I would only recommend them for very mild illnesses and things. Well, before we go on, actually, I just want to ask, what would the definition of a herb be, by the way? Is well, it, I mean, <laughs> it seems to be quite a uh, imprecise yeah. term. Is it, I mean, could it, is it literally anything from a plant? What I'll say to you now is, because I've included it in a book, because I have kind of gone down that journey and I've included a few sort of definitions in the book. Some of them are quite funny. So one of them is very, that I think the world health organization probably has the best kind of definition which mm. which refers to herbs generically and it says herbal materials herbal preparations and finished herbal products that contain whole plants parts of plants or other plant materials including leaves mm -hmm. bark berries flowers and roots and all their extracts extracts as active ingredients, which are intended for human therapeutic use or for other benefits in humans and sometimes animals. So I think that kind of sums it up well. Yeah. What really annoys me about what I wanted to make very clear in the book is that for centuries really, and still is, everyone tends to lump herbs and spices together and puts them under the category of herbs. Herbs are very different to spices, you know, botanically and historically and in all those sorts of ways. They are very, very different. So in the book, if you're if you're looking for um, information on spices, you won't find it. It is specifically about herbs, this mm -hmm. book, and okay. not about spices. That seems a pretty concise one. It's, it's a tricky <laughs> one, isn't it? Because, you know, um, it's hard to do with semantics and semantics change over the centuries. All plant life was veg was vegetable. But now we yeah. specifically think of the foods you can eat as being vegetables. Yeah. Um, yeah. All vegetables that you can eat were also called pot herbs at one point, but that's not the same yeah, as herbs. It. It's all very yeah, confusing. Yeah. Um, very. It must have been quite confusing researching it. It was actually. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it did. So I had to just be quite strong with what what I did and what I kept in. And and I, and I have included recipes and I've written about things like like the World Health Organization, you know, stipulates about barks and berries and flowers as well because uh, to me they are they were always herbal you know in that historic sense in that sort of very early medieval sense so yeah it was important for me to put all of those in well talking about the middle ages i wanted to know uh, yeah, in the middle ages you can't pop into a chemist's or honda barrett's buy yourself <laughs> a lot of st john's yeah. work tablets or whatever um <laughs> how were people preparing and taking their their herbs if 
they were medicines. I guess some of it's ingestion, but I guess not all. In the um, sort of Anglo-Saxon period, that's when it really, when we really begin to understand how herbs were used and how they were applied and how they were ingested mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. Because there was a man in the Victorian era called, he was a scholar called Oswald Cocaine, um, an amazing man actually. And he translated loads of old manuscripts and texts from that period, um, particularly something that was called Bold's Leech Book, oh, which yes, was yes. written around the 10th century. He basically took all of that and other from other um, resources, from other manuscripts um, of around that time, and he translated them, which is absolutely amazing, into about three kind of volumes. And so from those translations, we get a really good idea about how you know herbs uh, were used and it's absolutely fascinating i mean i'm constantly going in and out of the leech books mm-hmm. uh, and leech basically was just a name for like um like a, someone who would treat people or you know a, a, a medical kind of thing nothing to do with leeches by the way sure. <laughs> although it's quite <laughs> ironic really so that's kind of when it all started that's where we get the basis for a lot of our kind of information mm-hmm. and you, you know that they were they were used as ointments as pol- poultices well wow, I always find that word to say so they're kind of mixtures of grains and flour and herbs that were all mixed together mm-hmm. and then placed on the wounds I don't know if you've ever watched oh, okay. I'm absolutely fascinated by it there's a, a a series like an MGM series that's been streaming for a while called Vikings oh yeah and it's I find it really fascinating I absolutely love it I'm addicted to it and if you see, there's a lot, lot of times, I find it, it's also very historically accurate in a lot of ways. And if you'll notice that when anyone gets seriously injured, they put these poultices on them and then they sort of help heal them. So you had, yeah, so you had ointments, drinks, amulets, which were objects of protection made from herbs or containing herbs. And you'd have tinctures. So sort of things that were soaked in alcohol and then oh, kind of... Dripped down until you got until you got the sort of liquid. Yeah, I guess like um, vanilla extract or something today. That's a bit like that. Dissolved in alcohol, isn't it? Usually. Yeah, that's yeah. Sort of left for several months to sort of kind of stew and then and then mm. kind of dripped through and then even snuffs, all kinds of things, uh, and we, and then of course in cooking, obviously. Yes. You know, so they were used in many many different ways, and those translations give us all the recipes and all the methods and the rituals that were used around that because there were many different rituals you know there's these uh 10th century manuscripts and of course this knowledge goes back thousands of thousands of years to prehistory but uh, medicine magic superstition religion they've always gone hand in hand haven't they they've been kind of versions of all part of the same thing yes everything is interwoven together really all of those things you said, and of course, going back to what I said earlier, we were all pagans at one point, you know, when the Ra- Romans came, that, you know, the Celts, the, when we're talking about this country, that is, um, mm-hmm. well, Britain, that is, uh, you know, we had the Celts, and then when the Romans came, they had their own pagan gods, and we looked at Rome and Greece for ideas, you know, all the writings and all the different philosophers who wrote about um, the link between, you know, the stars, the planets and nature. Um, And and we have always kind of taken 
those um, those kind of philosophies, and they have been kind of mixed up with German, with Frankish, with Scandinavian ideologies as well. So this huge kind of mix, but mostly if you move through into the kind of medieval period, most kind of books uh, follow that kind of doctrine of uh, Hippocrates and Plato and Galen and all those kind of um, Greek philosophers uh, and all the books are written in, you know, according to what they kind of deemed essential about kind of the natural world and and the elements and things. So, yeah, so basically, essentially, herbs were, if you look at them in terms of astrology, which is what Mm -hmm. everything was about during the the sort of medieval period, each herb was categorised under a planet and whichever astrological sign then corresponded to that planet according Mm -hmm. to ancient mythology it became linked to the star sign take my star sign which is libra okay libra is ruled by the planet venus so one herb that falls under the planet venus is mint so if if i wanted to be advantageous in my kind of um what was going to be good for me i would need to grow and consume lots of mint okay because that was considered to be the plant that would be best for me um would work best for me and it's odd isn't it how um you know it's a christian country by now is is britain a very yeah. christian country yeah and there seems to be no problem at all holding in their heads a religious christian doctrine which is very yeah. anti-pagan yeah. and all that kind of stuff they want to rule yeah. that kind of stuff out but yet at the same time astrology and magic right seem to be sit very happily yeah contradicting the i know <laughs> it's really odd, in their it? heads yeah it's really strange and i think it's probably it was an academic thing you know and that kind of academia and that scholastic thinking was around for so long for so many centuries it was just considered the way that you did things you know yeah. you had to learn from the greeks and the romans they were you know, the most learned, the most knowledgeable. And so everything was about that. So, yeah, and that those were the beliefs that that carried on really right up until, you know, the 19th century, you know, that people still held those beliefs. Well, it hasn't got it hasn't got away to some degree, no, and even no, 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 from no, the point no. of view of talking about superfoods and alkali diets and yeah, yeah. paleo diets, it's all kind of versions of the same thing. The idea of what you eat, when you eat it. Yeah. You know, is, is still important. And it probably is important to some degree. It is. It is important, <laughs> but not, you know, not that you have to kind of go out in the middle of the night when the moon is is uh, is waxing or waning and dig a hole in the ground and plant something and then urinate on it and then, you know, dig it up two days later when the, when the moon is in a different or some planet is in a different stratosphere. And, to, you know, it's just crazy. Yes, we've lost know. all that that medieval logic and it seems so weird to us now (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) obviously things were linked to the four humors which i guess yeah once you've learned those things i guess you can pick up on them of course that is all greek as well basically hippocrates took plato's notions of earth air water and fire yeah those are the four elements weren't they that's it and then he created the four humors from that so blood was the air element being 
hot and moist. And you've got phlegm, which is the water element, which is cold and moist. Yellow bile, which is the fire element, which is hot and dry. And then black bile, which is the earth element. So that's cold and dry. And then the theory behind that is that you kept everything balanced in order all of those things balanced in your system in order to maintain a, a healthy existence but then galen who uh, wrote he actually lived in the roman empire although he was greek as well he expanded this theory um to include kind of psychological well-being and temperament and so mm -hmm. this remained hugely important throughout the 16th and some and 19th centuries so that some foods that were sweet were considered hot and moist while sharp and tart foods were cold and dry and so if your temperament was cold but moist i.e you were phlegmatic mm -hmm. you'd eat hot yes we still have it in our vocabulary don't we All these yeah I know. exactly exactly <laughs> it was that important yeah. so you'd need to eat hot and dry foods like garlic pepper or onions or if your personality was hot and tempestuous or colic uh, choleric, sorry, you um, better off eating kind of cool flavors like yeah, cool wet things like fish. Fish and fennel was a massive, massively popular pairing, um, and because it alleviated the kind of phlegmatic humor, so that you'll find that a lot everywhere. Fish and fennel, and of course, mm. it's very traditional now. Fish and fennel. Yes, it's funny, isn't it? Because uh, it's. I mean, I guess there's a big science about what what flavors go together or what foods go together. And I guess also it's partly down to seasonality. Yes. You know, um, elderflower yes. and gooseberry go together really well, Absolutely. but they're also around at the same time. Yeah. And it's very difficult to kind of um, get a handle, or it is for me, whether it's kind of what came what came first. Was it they were just a natural combination, so they were put together, or somebody sat and using whatever logic, like mm. the four humours or some other um, pagan uh, idea, yeah. um, have they used those notions to come up with these different combinations and yeah. i guess so it's all lost i suppose i mean it's not I really think an answerable question is it <laughs> yeah i think it's probably a combination of all those things to be honest but it, it, it is fascinating it really is fascinating and i think it's just really interesting the way that we paired those foods and i think probably traditionally some of that has stayed hasn't it with us you know you've got to remember all these other cultures as well native americans chinese indians i mean they all had their own ways of working with herbs my book sadly because i you know it's such a huge subject area that i mostly kind of focus on britain but i think you know occasionally i bring in other kind of uh, cultures but the 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 wider picture the more global picture is really fascinating mm -hmm. and how we probably have taken from all of those different cultures a little bit particularly the middle east i think because they were so influential to us during the early medieval period yes and people were... don't realize just how many fruits vegetables herbs spices yeah. uh, which we think are you know just part of britain have actually yeah. come from originally the middle east apples carrots you know really everyday yeah, stuff it. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the when the Romans came, I mean, they plant. I don't. I did. I did have a figure for the for a loose amount of what they. But it was just hundreds of different varieties of um, you know plants and herbs that they cultivated here, and that sort of opened up all kinds of new ways of cooking for us too. Um, although I don't think we really appreciated that until a bit later. But but yeah, it, it, and and of course we were trading with the Middle East, with the Franks, with Scandinavia, with 
Germany for, you know, who were constantly, you know, they were occupying us at war with us. We were trading with them. You know, Mm -hmm. we had a lot more than people at first think. We weren't just scrabbling in the ground eating turnips. There was a lot more to it than that at a much earlier period. And uh, I think it's a much bigger, more interesting picture than people realise. And it doesn't all just start in the Middle Ages. It's way before that. I was surprised to see how many plants that were used for cooking, you know, or maybe used to, you know, lend some kind of aromatic um, quality to our food, crop up in the magical stroke medicinal lists in the book you know we have things that after a certain time in the evening we only drink things like fennel tea chamomile mint you know to help with our digestion and all the rest of it and we all spray lavender on our pillows to help us sleep there are many things that we could not do without yeah they definitely have a a lot of them have a soporific is that the word kind of makes you a bit drowsy lettuces do that don't they if i'm right Lettuces are soporific. If oh, you grow them yourself. Oh, possibly. Um, I grow a lot of They must be really fresh. So there's a story in a Beatrix Potter book. What's the little rat? Peter Rabbit. Peter Rabbit, yeah. They all go off and steal oh, he cabbages, uh, yeah. lettuces from whatever the farm's yeah, called, yeah. Farmer Maggot or whatever. Farmer, and they all fall yeah. asleep eating them. Because I just it's, thought it's because he was exhausted from all the no, running around. No, it's, it's <laughs> the, the lettuces have put them to sleep. So there's definitely, oh, really? so there's definitely um, really good compounds in there for uh, helping you relax and nod off. Hey, Beatrix Potter, it's coming useful. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I do love a lot of Beatrix Potter. Yeah, it's it's when you cut it off just above the roots, right? Okay. And you get all that kind of white, yeah, loopy sap. It's, it's yeah, that, yeah. It's that that's a, the soporific element. So if you if you're having trouble sleeping, just lick that lettuce. I grow loads of lettuce more than anything. <laughs> and I just grab handfuls of it from the pot. So, you know, perhaps that explains some of the fact that I'm always asleep on the sofa by nine o'clock. That could That's be it. That's salad. That's salad for you. But yeah, there are lots of combinations and foods and things like tansy, tansy cakes. Mm. You know, if you pick up, as you well know, probably you pick up any medieval recipe book and tansy cakes are Tan- yeah, tansy fritters, tansy puddings. Tansy fritters, tansy, yeah. tansy this, tansy that. And of course, they were thought to be good for parasitic worms, weren't they? To keep the worms away. And they were also very phlegmatic. I yeah, think. they're very bitter, aren't they? Yeah, to counteract phlegm, sorry. Yeah, so they're very bitter and they're using everything. And then suddenly it just stops. Obviously, just people just think, no, just, they're not very tasty. And I've never actually made, someone asked me not long ago whether I've ever made a tansy cake. And I haven't actually, have you? It's, no, it's been on my list of, of things to try, but I keep yeah. getting put off because apparently you can overdose on it quite easily. Whatever okay. that bitter compound is. I can't remember now, it was a long time ago. That I read about it, but does it have some kind of narcotic effect? I mean, yeah, it could be going out on some bad trip if you overdo <laughs> the tansy. <laughs> you don't want to get in the car, do you? That's for sure. Uh, I mean, a lot of them were, were narcotic, weren't they? Uh, well, are, I should say. Well, I find, because I've grown, well, I don't, I mean, I live in an apartment these days, but I, I had an yeah. allotment and I found a lot of the parsley family. Um, so, parsley, um, freshly picked parsnips, if I mm. ate them raw, my mouth went numb. Oh yeah, definitely no, got. There's definitely something going on. Yeah, with there's parsnips. definitely something in parsnips. Yeah, you're right. I've I've felt that as well. In fact, I think quite a few root vegetables I think can can have that effect. Angelica, that was widely mm. being used in puddings and cakes. Yes, for um, for people who don't know Angelica, that's but well, I I remember it as yeah. the little bits of green 
Candid, yeah. Candid stuff that you get on cakes and yeah. things like that. I but, use uh, loads of it. I use loads of Angelica. And it was, and wait, it's, um, it's quite a, it's, it's got a, quite a, it's, it's a big tall plant, isn't it? Like a big frond yes. sticking out of it. I'm trying to think, I'm not sure if I've seen one. I'm not sure if I'm confusing it with something else. What does it taste like, Angelica? Angelica's nice. I mean, I, I quite like Angelica. And hmm. it, it, it grows abundantly, wildly in this country. And it, of course, it helps a lot with anxiety too. It also, I believe, was a, a counteract to witchcraft too. So if you had someone put a spell on you, yeah, it was used to kind of remove that. So Angelica was quite a powerful thing. And people used to grow it a lot in their gardens. And there's a man called Richard Shepherd, who was from Preston, who used to grow it in his, he had a big back garden and he used to grow it there in his garden and he would grow it for the local community that couldn't afford to buy it. It was considered such a valuable herb to help with all kinds of different ailments. And so he'd give it away to the local community, which is lovely. And I think there are lots of stories like that, actually. Uh, Sorrel, very, very ancient. I love Sorrel. Yeah, yeah the Anglo-Saxons put, huge faith in it and it was it was supposed to be and again it was a, a, a real purgative kind of herb that would get rid of all the poisons and toxins in your body mm. so that's probably um, right because when you bite into it you can tell it's got lots of tannins yes, in there yeah tannins yeah. It's, it's what's in red wine or really strong tea that yes. make your teeth feel a that's bit it. rough exactly and it's um it it's precipitates protein so it yeah. latches onto a protein and stops it being soluble and it just yeah. set, it settles down. So for that reason, it's really good. Um, if, you've, if you've had something that's upset your stomach, potentially yeah. food poisoning or something, having yeah. anything with lots of tannins in precipitates those horrible proteins and stops yeah. them working because they've got to be yeah. soluble to work and it makes yeah. them a solid. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all that sorrel has been used for, yeah. for that. Because, yeah, it's definitely got lots about of About a thousand years, at least, it was very, you know, hugely popular. But, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of things that they put. And, of course, the we uh, took on a lot of cookery books from the Middle East that far way before we had cookery books, you know. And we we have to appreciate that we were probably, we must have, some of those recipes must sort of have transferred down over to us as well there's a few recipes in the book and there's there's recipes from which are global so there's quite a lot old middle eastern recipes in the book and there's japanese recipes in the book as well yeah there's a whole section we haven't we haven't really talked about that we got the, the, the way the books the, the, the yeah, way the sorry. book is actually structured yeah you got a whole kind of big section uh like, like kind of the last third of the book i suppose is yeah a whole lot of um Recipes that have herbalism, you know, in yeah, mind, from all from which are global, really. Because mm. um, I, I wanted to put in that element. I think it's really important to talk about the fact that you know, as I've said before, so many cultures have their own ways of of uh, uh, of ingesting herbs and using herbs. I mean, how many times you even just you still go down a high street now today and you find those Chinese herbal medicine shops, mm. don't you? People put a lot of faith in it still. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess as a whole set of stuff we could talk about you know whether things are actually working or not and whether it's faith that's actually doing the job rather than the, well, the stuff know, itself and it. placebos and placebos yeah. and all that kind of stuff um yeah let's not get into that one no i mean but there are lots of you know there have been lots of clinical trials that i know there was i can't remember it was 
have huge apologies whether it was Nottingham or Newcastle. I think it was Newcastle University that actually took a recipe from um, an old leech that uh, cocaine had translated. They recreated this recipe and they found that it was hugely powerful in, in eradicating MRSA. <laughs> right, okay. There've been other trials with sage for memory and things like that that have, you know, they've given them placebos and then given them sage mm. and they've realized that the sage has helped people recall their memory um, in a very powerful way. But I guess the, the flip side of the coin there, I suppose, is, you know, we can't, you can't get around the fact that there's a lot of quackery. And there is. Preying particularly on vulnerable people as well, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. So, and it's very difficult to disentangle the real, in inverted commas, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. herbalism that really does have a medicinal base, even though, you know, the people using it aren't necessarily scientists or using any scientific yeah. method, like like that example you just gave. Yeah, and people who would just try to fleece people out of their money. and Yes, you know, I know, it is shocking, and, yeah. it, and it's sad in a way, isn't it? I mm. mean, there are, thankfully, there are still, you know, there are laws in place now, um, you know, laws that came in during the 20th century, but... I think, yeah, there are a lot of con artists out there and there's a lot of people, sadly, who who put their trust in it, who perhaps have lost confidence in doctors and things. But you cannot rely on herbs. They are not, as I said right at the beginning, you mm -hmm. know, that they, they are not an alternative to drugs for serious illnesses and things. But I, I genuinely believe that they can help with something. And I know that they've generally, they have helped me hugely so i i do i do recognize that there are good things but every and everyone is different what works for me might not work for someone else because everybody ingests things in a different way that you 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 cannot just say well because it's worked for me then it's going to work for so and so around the corner you know we're all different yes indeed and it's one of the things where you can only really look, look at it at a population level because it might be that you take something and you're still ill but you might have been half as ill yeah. But from exactly. your point of view is, oh, it didn't work. I'm still ill. So it's, yeah. it's really hard to tell sometimes. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. It's really, really difficult. And I guess it's why there's still uh, always a grey area there where science yeah. can't just go, no, this this is what works and this isn't. That's you know, if, it. If it was that exactly. simple, you know, we would exactly. have sorted everything out by now. <laughs> where there's magic medicine and, and all these gray gray areas yeah. there's definitely or there definitely was a big double standard yes men using herbs yeah were very much viewed very differently as women using herbs especially yes. if things didn't work or if things went wrong oh yes of course women got the blame but then you know uh not a lot's changed really but then no? you know it's, it was mostly it was mostly based on the theory that obviously eve was the one that put, uh, that kind of betrayed god in the garden of eden you know when she ate from the apple so therefore it, you know as christianity spread it became very clear that you know women were the were the the evil destructive creatures in society, mm -hmm. and uh, there was a huge amount of misogyny that drives forward all kinds of things during the Middle Ages. Um, women were persecuted. I'm sure many people know about all the witch hunts and all the rest of it, but it basically that that was the crux of it. 
you know, it all stemmed from the Bible. And midwives in particular had a, a really bad time because obviously they were delivering babies. And if a baby was born disabled or stillborn, then clearly the midwife was a witch, you know, because it was it was because of her that this had happened. There's a famous book called The Hammer of Witches. Yes. Yeah, which yeah. was written in Germany in the 1400s. Yeah, and James I was very influenced by that book, wasn't he? And of course, yes, he was the one who yeah. really were into witch trials and things. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And it, it sort of strongly influenced that whole culture of going out, hunting and torturing and killing, you know, women uh, that were accused of witchcraft. Hmm. And often um, it was just something as innocent as maybe bringing some herbs yeah. In an amulet and, and saying, whispering a dedication. Sometimes it was actually a prayer to God. It wasn't yeah. even anything pagan, but, you know, you whisper yeah. these things. It all, by nature, I guess it's all done in the dark. Yeah. Uh, it's mystical and therefore... If you're not that kind of person, you can't get your head around it. But men, for some reason, kind of rise above all that, get away with it. And women end up getting, you know, hanged or whatever. When you look at apothecaries and all the, 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 the what men were doing with um, with herbs and what, you know, all the things that they were conjuring up and doing, it's, uh, I, I mean, it's just astounding, really. And I actually read that the, it, this is quite shocking, something like the, the last witch trial was something like it was like the 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 late 1800s and you're thinking seriously seriously kind of actually went on that long and and i don't think we realized for hundreds of years that 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 ingrained misogyny and that that hatred of women uh, how vehement it was and frightening it was and just Um, use women as scapegoats yeah a lot of the time because you know you can get away with it from a man's point of view or even from other women's point of view too it wasn't always men you know that's the other sad thing about it you know it was just the easy easiest person to blame and even if it's not their fault and even if you kind of really know deep down it's not their fault it makes you feel better I mean it's all horrible and toxic but that's what that seems to be a lot of what was going on there and these poor old you know wise women going around being pillars of the community within a a second, you know, are evil witches. It can all completely change. But there were some great women. Like I'll just very quickly mention Elizabeth Blackwell. Come the 1700s, things were changing a bit. She wrote an amazing book called A Curious Herbal, you mm-hmm. know, and she um, she actually set up lodgings near Chelsea Physic Garden. So she was one of the first women to sort of paint and engrave and, and, and publish her work in yeah. that way. She also had the Royal Society, they they mentored her a bit, which is amazing, really. She was from a good Scottish family, but she was married to a really inept man um, who just kept all these little enterprises he kept, you know, trying. And so she she did this to earn the money to get him out of prison, basically. Right. And it took her years. And she finally got the money to get him out of prison. And then he just went off to Sweden and committed treason and did something ridiculous there. Uh. And eventually, I think he was beheaded. But, you know, the thing is that she, 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 she did all this for someone else. But actually, she was one of the kind of the first kind of women, really, to be taken seriously in botanical art. So she was left on her own in London. And then I don't think there's an awful lot known about her. I know that she had three children, and I think she outlived all her children, sadly. But her only legacy is that one book, which is a curious herbal, which has all those beautiful drawings in it. 
And then, of course, after her, you get a whole string of, of women that kind of, you know, started to pioneer botanical writing and uh, botanical studies and things. Marianne North, who was um, one of those uh, tremendous kind of inspiring, pioneering Victorian women that just sort of went off into the jungle on her own kind of thing, you know, that is just a massive screenplay waiting to be written, I think. The great thing about her was that she started, um, she wrote a diary throughout all her travels as well. And she initially traveled with her father and they went off and you know they they found all kinds of new plants and things all over the Europe mostly and then he died when she was reasonably young well late 30s I think and she decided to just take herself off on her own and carry on their work but writing her diaries which was great which her sister published after she died Mm. so we were able to find out more about her But she went, I think she was about age 40, and she just went to Jamaica on her own. You know, and you're talking, what, 1830s or something? I mean, maybe it was a bit later than that, 1850s. But just quite scary when you think she she wasn't married. You know, she was fairly young, and Mm. she was a woman, you know, going into those kind of areas. Yeah, it just didn't happen, did it? No, I mean, Mm. really fascinating. But actually, when you read about it, there were quite a few women that would sort of doing that and then she went to Brazil she went to Tenerife she went to California she went to Japan she went to Singapore Borneo um, Java Ceylon India Australia South Africa the Seychelles you know she was kind of embracing all these different cultural experiences um, and writing back about all the plants that she'd found and she was you know in in um, contact with Kew Gardens and I'm I'm pretty certain that Kew Gardens have they have a space for her now today I think because she brought so many samples back and you know liaised with them quite a lot and kind of bought new species and all kinds of things so she was really important and I think she actually sadly died reasonably young I think she was only about 60 when she died right. which was a shame because I think she just would have gone on and on and on but there are a, a few of those kind of stories of women in that in the Victorian era that did that well, I could talk to you all day about this. There's so many other things that I wanted to talk about, but we've we've kind of run out of time a little I bit, know. really. I know it's sad, it's such an it? interesting subject. Like I say, from whatever direction you're coming from, whether it's from a yeah. scientific and or whether it's whether you're really kind of into the kind of spiritual, stroke, magical, mystical side of things, I think it's very well put in the, in the book. You know, it's, it kind of appeals to, or it should appeal to everyone. Oh, good. I hope so. Yeah, and I wanted to, I mean, I, I did sort of A to Z to make people sort of use it as a reference guide as well. So if they wanted to look up a herb, they could look it up for its culinary properties as well as its kind of magical and medicinal properties as well. So there's a couple of different kind of A to Zs in there that people can just use as good reference. So I think that's really important with herbs. You just want, sometimes you just want to grab and see, find something and see what it is. And you Yes, know, well, you sifted through it also. So we don't have to. Yeah, that's, that's basically <laughs> the crux of it. I hope so anyway. I hope that's how it's worked. But yeah, it was it was really interesting to write. And there are so many more stories, you know, that's just a very small part of it, really. And, and if you're interested in any subject, you know, you to understand that subject, you need to know the history of it. I yeah, think. absolutely. It's really important. Like where it all starts, doesn't it? Yeah, because a lot of the time the ideas are informed by what was going on at the time, uh, 
certainly when, when uh, they got things wrong or got things right, it maybe yeah, would yeah. have happened in a different time. You've really got to understand the historical context to really get to grips with, with any subject, I think. With anything. Yeah, you're yeah. right there. Never a truer word was said, Neil. Thanks. That's why we do, <laughs> that's why we do what we do. Well, yeah. So what's what's uh, coming next, by the way, for, for Emma Kay? What's well, lined up? Can you say anything? Yeah, well, I've got a book coming out about um, Anglo-Saxon culinary history, which yeah, I'm is very excited about that. I have to say, just fascinating. Um, I'm I'm excited about that. Oh no, it's exciting! I can't wait to read it. Oh, it was great having Emma on again. I'm sure it won't be the last time she's on. Now I've left links to well Emma's book and her social media, plus links to two of the books that we talked about. One. Marianne North's biography, and the other one, A Curious Herbal by Elizabeth Blackwell. You can find those as digitised books online, so there's a link to those if you want to look at them a little bit more. There's two Easter eggs from today's episode, two cut bits. One, from the bit of the chat where we talked about the preparation and ingestion of herbs, about a particularly potent preparation called the Nine Herb Charm. The second Easter egg is all about the infamous mandrake. You're probably tired of hearing me say this, but I don't care. I'm going to say it anyway. Subscribers get access to my Easter eggs page with all the extras from past episodes, all the lead scenes and extra bits, the extra mini season, etc. But there's also extra blog posts just for subscribers too. You can find those in the blog by searching the keyword term premium content. If you want to start a subscription, it's just £3 a month. Go to the support the blog and podcast tab on the website. Everything I receive goes back into making more content. Alternatively, and only if you want to, you could treat me to one-off virtual coffee or pint, or virtual anything, in fact. You can put in your own amount. But as per, there's no pressure. Instead, please like and subscribe and tell a friend or two. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, leave comments, reviews, ratings. They really do all make a difference. To keep tabs on what I'm doing, go to BritishFoodHistory.com or follow me on social media. Oh, actually, one thing I forgot to mention last week, something I've been doing (laughs) between seasons, if you're interested and you follow me on Twitter, I'm on a cocktail mission. I'm making loads of cocktails. I'm tweeting the recipes with any tasting notes and history. I'm only allowed one tweet per cocktail, though. So it's an exercise in brevity as much as anything. Anyway, it's all good fun. If you've got any questions, comments or queries about anything from this episode, you know this, or indeed any episode in the podcast so far, please get in contact. Okay, bye.